Hello and welcome to episode 373 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today and we will skip the month and year game this week. As you will recall, today is part two of an episode written by a listener and my good friend Gemma Gold. So if you haven't listened to the last episode, I suggest you do because today we're going to pick up where we left off. Last week, we looked at the story of 16-year-old Mark who lived in Stockport near Manchester and his experiences on the Manchester teen chat room. His girlfriend he met there, Rachel, was raped and murdered by another member of the chat room, Kevin McGregor. Mark also became good friends with Rachel's little brother, John. He then met another character there, Lindsay East, who confessed that she was actually a member of MI6 and there to protect John, who was under government protection, as he was being targeted by the psychopathic killer Kevin, who'd murdered his sister. Lindsay left abruptly, but her boss in MI6, 44-year-old Janet Dobinson, joined the chat and asked Mark to carry out a number of assignments for her with the promise of joining the Secret Service himself, lots of money and sexual services, <laughs> whatever the word is. And she told him also that his friend John was actually James Bell, a fellow MI6 operative who was trusted by the Queen to have access to jewels at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, worth a staggering £568 million. Mark's success or failure was judged on his ability to protect James. The episode ended as Janet asked Mark on the chat, could you kill someone close to you? Mark stared at the screen for what seemed like forever before eventually replying, yeah, I could. There's my answer. Mark's official assignment as a Secret Service agent was to be an assassination. His target was none other than James Bell, also known to Mark as John, Mark's best friend. On hearing this, Mark went into a tailspin, his mind full of thoughts he couldn't process. He hadn't even gone through weapons training, and yet he sat there with orders to kill his best friend on the streets of Manchester. At first, Mark thought Janet was joking or this was another test, but reality dawned quickly when Janet insisted this had to be done for the sake of the country. He was assured that upon completion of the hit, he had been given an employment contract, £80 million, and sexual favours from Janet herself. Mark worried this would be defined as murder, but he was again reassured it didn't apply in this case. After all, John had been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumour, therefore it was a morally justified act. Mark was incredulous. Surely his best friend would have told him if he'd had a brain tumour. Could he really kill him? In fact, not just him. Could he really take any life? A few days later, Mark and John were chatting online when John suddenly blurted out to Mark he'd received a letter from his doctor. John told Mark that he'd gone to the doctor a few weeks ago as he was feeling low and depressed. The doctor had run some tests and the outcome was bleak. The letter confirmed the worst that John had a large brain tumour and there was nothing anyone could do. He told Mark he was on borrowed time and he now faced a long, drawn-out and painful death. Mark was bereft. As the gravity of the situation sunk in, he realised something. Agent Dobinson was in fact telling the truth. Mark was now able to justify the act to himself as it was clear the assassination wouldn't in fact be murder, but it was a mercy killing. He sat down at his computer once more and logged on waiting for Janet to make contact. 
As the first message appeared on the screen, Mark read it, and he read it again. The messages kept on coming as more and more details being given to him about how and when he was to carry out his mission. It had to be up close and personal, which meant that only a close friend would be able to do it. He had to be stabbed, and Mark was ordered to say the words, Trust me, as he stabbed John. It was imperative, he was told, that he did not divert from these instructions whatsoever. On the 28th of June, 2003, Mark was informed he'd officially been welcomed into the British Intelligence Service. He was officially an agent and was given his code name, 47695. Mark took this terribly seriously, and he set about readying himself for the assassination, which was set to happen the following day. The familiar ping from the chat chimed regularly as further details were coming in from his handler. He was instructed to buy gloves so he didn't leave fingerprints, and also a large kitchen knife as Janet told him that Mark's pocket knife wasn't going to do the job. He was told he had to take John to the Trafford Centre in the centre of Manchester and carry out the hit there, and most importantly he was to tell John that he loved him as he drew his last breath. Under no circumstances should he call an ambulance, he should wait a while before calling the police, and when he did so, Janet would arrive on the scene, disguised as a detective superintendent, to ensure he wouldn't get arrested. Mark was to stay on the scene until she showed up. With the plan finalised, Mark tried to settle down for the evening, running through everything in his head again and again, making sure he memorised every detail. Another message quickly followed explaining there was an abort code and should at any point the following day hear the numbers 6969, he was to terminate the mission immediately. Mark didn't know where the abort code would come from but was told it was most likely come from the loudspeakers in the town. Mark headed to bed fraught with angst. He knew he wouldn't sleep at all that evening as he was so racked with guilt and worry about what the day ahead held in store. He was of course conflicted at the thought of killing his best friend, but then he knew it would save him from the awful death experienced by those suffering from brain tumours. He knew that every movement he took would be watched, but he also knew very very clearly what had to be done, what he had to do for the sake of Queen and country. After all, they couldn't risk John in a state of pain-induced delirium ever telling someone the code to the safe deep in the Atlantic. The next day, June the 3rd, was a warm, glorious summer's day. Mark took the bus to the Trafford Centre and he met the unsuspecting John outside. He had decided in his mind that the attack would somehow be easier if John picked out the weapon that would kill him. So he asked his young best friend to go with him to help pick out a kitchen knife. As they walked around the centre, Mark was feeling incredibly sick and dizzy, praying for the abort code to come. John noticed his friend was distracted and when he asked him about it, Mark brushed him off, saying it was just the heat. With the hours passing and no abort code forthcoming, Mark knew the time was approaching, so he started to try to find the right location for the hit. They took a stroll in a secluded wooded area nearby, but as they got further into the trees, Mark began to panic, feeling he was now too far away to to hear the abort code, so he quickly directed them back. Instead, they headed to the Goose Green Enclave, 
and into a dead-end alleyway. As they headed further down the alleyway, Mark stumbled upon an idea. What if this was just another test of his loyalty, and it would be stopped at the last minute? With relief, he realised that must be the case, and at any moment he would hear the abort code, or one of the operatives watching them would intervene. But by the time they approached the end of the alleyway, Mark suddenly jolted out of this mindset, and he knew calmly it was no test. Pulling out the knife his best friend had chosen hours earlier, he calmly told John what he had to do. John stared impassively at him in total silence. I love you, he said, before he plunged a knife into John's chest. He felt it pierce his ribcage as he watched John crumple down to the ground. John pleaded with Mark to call an ambulance, but Mark knelt down on the ground and gently shushed him. You've killed me, cried John. Mark hugged him and pleaded with him not to say that, not to let those words be the last that John said to him. Seeing John in pain and by now realising that one stab would not suffice, Mark dragged John to his feet, gently saying, Trust me, trust me, as he plunged a knife into him once more, this time piercing his kidneys and liver before gently lowering his friend to the ground. He stood up, took a few steps backwards, and as had been instructed, he waited for Janet Dobinson to arrive as the stream of blood poured around John's limp body. Hearing no sirens and seeing no one around, Mark decided to call 999 to alert Janet that the mission had been a success and she could proceed to arrive on the scene as arranged playing the part of a detective. His voice shaking, he told the police court handler, my mate's been stabbed. As the police descended on the scene, he scanned each one to try and figure out which was Janet Dobinson. Paramedics rushed down the alleyway and began frantically working on John. When asked what had happened, Mark explained that a man dressed all in black with a baseball cap had approached the boys and attacked John before fleeing. With the police clearly in the dark about the British establishment ordered hit, they quickly released a statement to the public appealing for any witnesses to come forward, along with a description of the suspect. Meanwhile, John was rushed to hospital, where after emergency surgery, he was in a critical but stable condition in ICU. The police quickly gathered what CCTV there was in the area, and as luck would have it, one camera directly faced the entrance to the alleyway. The grainy footage showed Mark and John entering the alleyway, 25 minutes ticked by, and they saw Mark re-emerge on screen, calling 999. The unknown suspect wasn't there, and no one else had followed them into the alleyway. It led police to draw the only conclusion they could, which was that John had been stabbed by his own best friend. Mark was arrested and charged with attempted murder. He pled not guilty, he was remanded in custody and sent to a Young Offenders Institute to await the court case while the detectives set about gathering more evidence to strengthen the case against Mark. The police questioned John, who initially denied his best friend's involvement, but when presented with the CCTV, he broke down, and in between sobs he admitted that yes, Mark had been the one to stab him. Police interviewed Mark again, who this time admitted he had stabbed John, and he'd heard voices telling him to do so. He just about stopped short of revealing that the Secret Service were behind the hit, fearing that doing so would get him in trouble with MI6, 
and he was confident that Agent Dobinson would arrive at any moment and have him released. He waited patiently for her to arrive and release him, but as the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into a month, he found himself still languishing in the Young Offenders Institute and Agent Dobinson was nowhere to be seen. Now desperate, March's resolve finally broke and he confessed everything to the police. Detectives couldn't quite believe what they were hearing. As they sat there listening to this intricate plot of MI6 sanctioning a hit on UK soil and recruiting the young teenager, they soon realised this was not some story concocted in his mind. It was very clear to them that Mark 100% believed every word he was saying. They seized his computer and discovered messages that caused great alarm. When they found webcam footage Mark had sent to several contacts, they initially feared he may have been a victim of a paedophile ring who had groomed him. Criminal analyst Sally Hogg was tasked with going through the masses of data relating to the Manchester teen's chat room that was found on Mark's hard drive, as well as investigating the 193 separate email addresses who Mark had been in contact with. Eventually, she managed to decipher the secretive language the teenagers had been communicating in, and after reading some 57,000 lines of text, she determined that there were six MSN users who were key to unravelling the complex plot. But Sally Hogg was struggling to find a clue to the identities of these six users. Each one had their own unique style of communication, and each had their own unique online persona, indicating that multiple co-conspirators were involved. A breakthrough finally came through in the form of a simple spelling mistake. Sally found that five of the six people spelt the word maybe in a very unique way. Instead of how we would spell it, they spelt it M-Y-B-Y-E. It hit her that they were in fact one and the same person. But who was this elusive person and where were they? After all, this was the internet. They could be anywhere in the world. Detectives felt the answer lay with Janet Dobinson. After all, she was guilty of incitement to murder. But things were complicated by the fact she'd been in direct contact with John too. The police received permission from John's mum to investigate his laptop and they soon made an even more alarming discovery. Someone had used John's laptop to log in under the username Janet Dobinson. Whoever it was must have had easy access to the laptop and the home broadband. Could it really have been a member of John's own family who'd instigated the plot to murder him? Sally Hogg quickly collated a list of dates and times that Janet was online and the police went about investigating who was at home on each of the dates. A shockwave ran through them when they realised on the 28th of June 2003 when details of the murder plot were being finalised there was just one person at home. And that person was... It was John. Could it really be that a 14-year-old boy had orchestrated his own murder? Surely not. I mean, it couldn't be, could it? When the police confronted John with their findings and suspicions, he admitted everything. They were left with more questions than answers. Just what had led to this, a 14-year-old boy with his whole life ahead of him creating a plot to murder him, something that would not have been out of place in an Agatha Christie novel. In fact, not an Agatha Christie novel, but a modern novel. So they looked more into his background. 
John's childhood had been marred with bullying and he was deeply unhappy. He had very few friends at school and as a result he sought and found solace online in his own little world chatting to people. It became almost an addiction when it was an addiction. He barely left his room and emerged only to get food, use the bathroom, before immediately returning to his sanctuary and to his computer where he felt safe and most importantly, he felt valued. This borderline addiction made him moody and sullen and tensions quickly arose within his family. In a desperate attempt to help their son and stop this addiction spiralling out of control, his parents did what they could. They disabled the home internet and took his laptop away. But as soon as he had the house to himself or they'd gone to bed, he would sneak downstairs to reconnect the internet, get his fix, anything to get that rush, and to be somebody, somebody of worth and value. One fateful day in early 2003, he entered the Manchester Teens chat room under the username Rachel West. Using the fake persona of a 16-year-old girl, he caught the attention of the unsuspecting Mark, who, believing he was chatting to an attractive girl the same age as him, was none the wiser. This gave John a sense of emotional connection with someone, something he had long longed for and something he didn't have in his life. It made him feel exhilarated. Instead of being bullied as he was used to, he found himself being accepted and loved. When he introduced himself as Rachel's younger stepbrother, he was elated to find that Mark genuinely seemed to like him and wanted to spend time with him. This friendship soon became the single most important thing to John. Yet the desire to maintain this friendship caused John to become trapped. He was entangled in his own web of lies. He thought about confessing the whole thing to Mark, but he couldn't face the prospect of losing his only true friend, his best friend. John distanced himself from those few school friends he had, and eventually those friendships ceased. The rows in his family became more frequent, and John retreated even further into his virtual reality. He felt that Mark was the only person he could talk to, and he soon found himself falling in love with him. But Mark had fallen in love with Rachel which posed a problem for John, who was becoming increasingly jealous of his own alter ego. He realised the only way to get Mark, or so he thought, to fall in love with him would be for Rachel to disappear, so he came up with an idea. He would kill her off, with her out of the way Mark would turn to him for solace, and from there their friendship would blossom into a relationship. John did everything he could to ensure Mark's undivided attention would go to him, or one of his aliases. If he felt Mark was losing interest in one, he would simply create another. Most would be like passing ships in the night. Others would wreak utter havoc with the gullible, kind-hearted teenager Mark. John lived in a constant state of fear that Mark would one day uncover his secret. But as the days and weeks went on, he found himself amazed at how easy it was to dupe the older boy, even when what John was saying just didn't add up. As the web of lies tightened its grip, John's deep love for Mark prevented him from telling Mark the truth. The emotional and mental burden threw him into a downward spiral of depression and suicidal thoughts. He was trapped. He could see no way out. As the thoughts grew more frequent and louder in his head, he came up with a plan. He would kill himself at the hands of another, and that's when he came up with Agent Janet Dobinson. By now, John knew full well how to manipulate Mark. After all, he'd been doing it successfully for months. 
So with this in mind, he said about his plan to give Mark his mission on the orders of the British government to assassinate him. The details were finalised right down to the exact words he was to say as he stabbed him. John wanted so desperately for Mark to love him like he loved Mark, and he needed his last words that he heard to be Mark telling John that he loved him. Three months after the attempt on his life, John was arrested. He became the first person in history to be charged with incitement to murder oneself. Incredibly, despite the seriousness of the charges facing him, he was not remanded into custody. Mark, meanwhile, languishing in the violent hellhole that is any UK Young Offenders Institute, was preparing for his day in court when he found out the awful truth. He was told that Agent Janet Dobinson, junior spy Lindsay East, psychopathic self-confessed rapist and murderer Kevin McGregor and Rachel West, who Mark had fallen for, were all in fact 14-year-old John. The enormity of the deception that Mark had fallen for hit him hard. He didn't know what to think. It was the ultimate betrayal. On the 28th of May 2004, the court case commenced and Mark and John came face to face with each other for the first time in 11 months. They didn't speak. Mark pled guilty to the attempted murder of John. John pled guilty to perverting the course of justice and then became infamous as he pled guilty to incitement to murder himself. The judge listened to the whole tale before passing judgment. He heard how Mark was gullible for his age, whereas John was more sophisticated for his. The court heard John described as a genius on more than one occasion when referencing his behaviour and the deception he had so successfully managed to pull off. In summing up, the judge said, Skilled writers of fiction would struggle to conjure a plot such as this which arises here. Having assessed the facts of the case, the judge was convinced that Mark genuinely believed that he was working for MI6 and had been subjected to a campaign of exploitation and manipulation at the hands of John. He said, I accept that fantastic as it seems when looked at now in the cold light of day that such a plot was presented to you. So convincingly were the characters presented that you really did believe you'd been recruited by the Secret Service, kill your co-accused, and face the consequences if you did not do so. The court heard that John had been seeing a psychologist in the intervening months since his arrest and was doing well. He was showing positive results, he had made friends, school was going well and he planned to go to university. Mark had been a model prisoner at the Young Offenders Institute, helpful and kind, and had managed to keep himself out of trouble. The judge acknowledged that in regular circumstances the charges would result in considerable prison time, but stated this was not a normal case by any standards. He accepted that John had been determined to kill himself and had ensnared Mark in his suicide attempt. He said the boys had a high probability of rehabilitation. In handing down two non-custodial sentences, the judge stated, each of the boys was a victim of the other. John was given a three-year supervision order and also in another legal first he was banned from using all online chat rooms. He would only be allowed to use the internet under strict supervision for the duration of his order. Mark was given a two-year supervision order and was also banned from entering online chat rooms, although whether he would ever want to go into one again was another matter.
The two friends, or rather ex-best friends, were then forbidden by the court from ever having contact with one another, an order that was to last for life. The judge handed down an indefinite order to prevent the true identities of anyone involved from ever being published. Mark and John are not their real names. The ramifications of this story were far-reaching and in late 2003, MSN announced it was terminating its service in 28 countries. At the time, MSN was the world's leading internet chat provider, but citing rising levels of inappropriate communications between users, MSN acknowledged that open, free and unmoderated chat rooms could never be completely safe for children and that the only way the company could be certain it wasn't unwittingly providing a place for paedophiles to groom new victims was to shut down their servers entirely. The story of Mark and John has been turned into an opera called Two Boys, a theatre production called I Love You Bro and a British film released in 2013 called You Want Me to Kill Him which debuted at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Although the court order prevents the real names of Mark and John ever being released, some reports state that as of a couple of years ago, John is now happy and successful, living with his boyfriend and their pet dog, a pug. I always love the detail, don't you? (laughs) A pug, okay, fair enough. And what became of Mark, whose entire world was turned upside down? Well... To this day, that remains a mystery. So what do you make of the story we've heard these last two weeks? It certainly is, as I said at the beginning of the last episode, every parent's nightmare, right? It's so easy with the benefit of hindsight to look back and question just how plausible was the story that Mark was being told. But he was susceptible, and this was a different era. The internet was relatively new on the scene. Online addiction wasn't even a term we'd heard. Leonardo DiCaprio dated people his own age, and people just believed that people were who they said they were. After all, what reason did you have not to? I do wonder what became of Mark. Did he? Could he ever trust again? I hope he's living a happy life. I hope these events have not ruined him, though how can you ever recover from this? It's hard to know. And their parents too, I can't help but feeling for both sets of parents. And the idea that a 14-year-old could be so desperate and depressed that they come up with a plan to kill themselves at the hands of another, well, it's almost hard to, impossible rather, to comprehend, isn't it? I'd like to think that we as a society have become more savvy to the dangers that lurk on the internet, the anonymous personas that sit behind a screen. As I sit here recording this, every week you hear about deception online and also the rise in catfishing. Well, looking at this case, it was surprising to find that catfishing isn't actually a criminal offence. If it involves fraud, it can be prosecuted under the Fraud Act, or if the communications are abusive, under the Malicious Communications Act. But these days, with AI and the ability to change your name, your face, even your voice, in a world where you can be whoever you want to be and hide your IP address, just how easy is it really to prosecute these people? It shocks me how easy it was for a young man to walk into a shopping centre and buy a knife back then. Thankfully times have changed but as we all know knife crime is still such a problem and one that I can't see a solution to depressingly anytime soon can you? If you'd like to discuss this case or any other aspects of UK true crime 
please join me on our Facebook page where there are over 92,000 of us ready to talk all things true crime 24-7. And if you want to support me at Patreon, you can do so for less than the price of a cup of coffee and you'll find 72 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content, including my ramblings about all sorts of stuff. There are no strings attached. You can cancel at any time. And a huge thank you to the new members of this community. That is Laura Wood, Kate Munden, Angela White and Sam Barnard. Thank you all so much for your support, which is much appreciated. Come and join us at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So until we speak again next week, it just remains for me to say thank you once again for listening to this episode. Thank you, Gemma, for writing this story. And remember, be careful online. With the exception of probably Joey Barton, who is so easy to spot for oh so many reasons, you just never know. So until Tuesday, despite all the others, and as we know, it's always the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now. <laughs>